may be seated. Would you please open up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 3 to 6, as we resume our sermon series through Ephesians. And I, I will go ahead and say that up front that this is, this passage today is a, on the one hand, it's a very simple passage. It's a very simple passage to to read and to understand, but it is, it's a very challenging passage. You know, perhaps, you know, surprisingly challenging and, and convicting. And, and it's, it's, when we come to passages like this, I'm, you know, I'm very thankful that, that you all know that I don't have any of you in mind, and you all know that I didn't pick this passage for today, that we decided we started preaching through Ephesians over a year ago, and this is just how it, how it falls. And so we're looking at this today, Ephesians 4, verses 3 to 6. Now, two Sundays ago, we looked at Ephesians 4, verses 1 and 2, which we saw that Paul that we, it had just entered into the second half of his letter to the Ephesians. That he had turned a corner, that he had moved from this uh, instruction about what God had done and, and, and who God had made the Ephesians to be in Christ, and now he's turning the corner to the second half of this letter, which has far more exhortation than the first half of the letter has. And so in Ephesians 4, verses 1 and 2, we saw that Paul essentially said, I've been telling you for three chapters about all that God has done for you in Christ, who he's made you to be in Christ, who you are now in Christ, Therefore, now I urge you, I implore you, I beg you to now be who you are. Be who he has made you to be. Follow Christ, love Christ, love his word, love his church, love his people, love one another. Let what you profess with your mouth and you claim to believe with your hearts be lived out in your life. Be who you are. Walk in a a manner worthy of your calling as a child of God. As Paul put it, with all humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. Simply put, live like you are a member of God's new family. You're no longer who you once were, therefore be who you are. And in our passage today, Paul tells us why we should bear with one another in love and why we should be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And then he gives us seven reasons why we should do this, why we should be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit within the church. And so as I read the text, which I'm going to read from verse 1 to verse 6, even though verses 3 to 6 are our sermon text, listen for the seven reasons. Okay? So hear now God's holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible, life-giving word. Ephesians 4, verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, and through all, and in all. This is the word of the Lord. And it's absolutely true. It's given to us in love for our good. So we're going to look at Ephesians 4, verses 3 to 6, 
under a lot of headings. There's actually eight of them, okay, but they go by quickly, I promise. The first heading, it will see this call to maintain unity. And then in the remaining seven headings, Paul gives us seven reasons why. Why we should bear with one another in love. Why we should be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And all of those reasons are, are marked by the word one. There's one body. There's one Spirit. There's one hope. There's one Lord. There's one faith. There's one baptism. There's one God and Father of all. So first, he says, maintain unity. So after Paul calls the Ephesians to walk worthy uh, in a worthy manner with all humility gentleness patience bearing with one another in love he says in ephesians 4 3 eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace now i think it's essential that we pay careful attention to what paul is not saying and what he is saying and so look at verse 3 and first notice that paul does not call us to create the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace doesn't say create it rather he says be eager to maintain it be eager to maintain this unity or to keep this unity this unity is to be maintained kept not neglected you see paul says that the christian church is already one he does not say there ought to only be one rather he says there is only one there is one body one unified church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul doesn't say that we ought to strive to create unity that we do not yet have. And he doesn't say we ought to strive to create now the unity that, that awaits us one day in heaven. Instead he, sa instead, he says, be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit you already have in Christ. Therefore, the, the Bible's starting point for understanding the church and Christian unity is that because every true Christian is indissolubly united to Christ, then our foundational Christian unity, our unity in Christ, cannot be lost. It can be fractured. It can be harmed in some way. It can be neglected. But, but look again at verse 3. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That all true Christians are all around the world are one in Christ. And notice that our unity is the unity of the Spirit. Our unity is rooted in the Spirit who is himself our bond of union with Christ. The indwelling Holy Spirit cements our union with Christ. So think about, think about what this means for how we are to understand this call by the Apostle Paul to maintain Christian unity today. See, Christian unity is not essentially structural. It's not outwardly focused and structural or organizational or denominational it's spiritual it's a spiritual reality it's a spiritual reality for all who are in christ whether we realize it or not whether we feel it or not now it can be easy and i think many do misunderstand what paul's saying what he's calling us to do in ephesians 4 verse 3 and so look carefully at it Paul's not calling Christians everywhere to come under the same one organizational structure, outward structure. He's not calling Christians everywhere to come under the same one denomination and to answer to and submit to the one human hierarchy of leadership. But he's talking about the unity of the Spirit. 
which is so much greater than some mere ecumenical movement that would try to do away with denominations and attempt to bring all of the different branches and tribes of Christianity together. And friends, we shouldn't forget that even in the days when the church had the most outward unity, the most outward organizational and structural unity, those were some of the weakest and worst days in church history. Now, it is it's a great and wonderful thing when different denominations can, can partner together in faithfulness and in biblical truth for the cause of Christ and various kingdom endeavors. However, we have to be careful that matters of biblical truth and faithfulness are never, ever pushed aside, never ignored, never sacrificed just to get along. And yet, I think we ought to be honest, that is often what happens. True Christians and faithful denominations could not, should not, must not compromise merely for the sake of unity. That unity at all costs, even the cost of biblical truth and faithfulness, is not Christian unity. Unity at all costs, just for the sake of getting along, that's sinful, worldly compromise and unfaithfulness. Right? We cannot sacrifice, for example, the authority of Scripture. The atoning work of Christ, salvation by faith alone, just to partner with those who claim to be Christian without actually trusting in and following Christ and his word. And so when matters of biblical truth and faithfulness are pushed aside, ignored, and sacrificed in the name of unity, the result is not unity. The result's not Christian unity. That's worldly compromise and unfaithfulness. And so put another way, Paul's urging us to remember the church's true unity is spiritual unity in Christ, and therefore it's a unity based on the clearly revealed truth of God's word. That Paul would never have us attempt to create mere outward unity where true Christian unity, based on the spirit and the truth of God's word, does not exist. Okay, so look again at Ephesians 4.3 eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Okay, so I've been talking about what this verse does not mean. So let's think about, okay, what does it mean? What does it mean for us as a local church? You know, I've kind of mentioned in some ways, you know, how to think about Christian unity more broadly, but but what does it mean for us here in this room? What does it mean for you and everybody who's sitting beside you? Everybody in your section. What we should be all the more eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace with one another. In this room. In this sanctuary. That each and every one of us must strive to maintain unity in our relationships in this room. You know, friends, we're a larger church than we were seven years ago. We're we're a younger church in many ways than we were seven years ago. And we should be willing to endure inconvenience and even a genuine, sincere difference of preference without compromising truth and faithfulness. I'm not, and I would never urge us to compromise truth and faithfulness. But we can't let our personal preferences threaten the unity and the peace of this church. Right? The unity and the peace of our local church is a precious thing. It's a precious thing. Do you realize that? It's precious. And Paul says, be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. 
And I'm so grateful for the, the peace and unity of this church over the last 15 years while I've been here. We must be eager to protect it. And so this means we must not engage in gossip and backbiting. We must be willing to love Christ's church enough and to, to love one another enough to, to refuse to be part of gossip and slander and other forms of sinful speech. Right? The world outside these walls seems to run on such things, on gossip and slander and backbiting and strife and jealousy and envy and harsh language. But we must not tolerate it here, in here in our congregation. If you think about, okay, how many people does it take to burn down the, the unity and the peace in the local church? I would say it just takes two. It just takes one to speak, and it takes one to just listen, just nod their head. It takes one to speak, to gossip, to complain, to gripe, and another to listen and to refuse to correct and to refuse to lovingly reprove the gossiping brother or sister. See, Paul says, be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Well, Pastor Sinclair Ferguson's helpful here. He says, Christian unity is a, is a priceless possession given to us in Christ. Just as we would guard a precious but fragile heirloom, lest it come to any harm, so we protect Christian fellowship, peace, and unity. The heirloom of Christ to his family from sinister influences that might cause it damage or to destroy it. I mean, so you think about your family heirloom. Or if you don't think you have one, think about your most prized possession. Okay, my, my oldest daughter was in the earlier service, and you know, I, so I can pick on her. She's not here now. But you know, her, her most prized possession very well could be that, that little device that has the apple with looks like a, a section of it missing, like a bite missing that's on the back of it. You know, but what is that thing to you that's most precious? That you guard and you, and, and you maintain, you take care of to the best of your ability. That you not neglect. That you never misplace. That you don't leave home without it. You know where it is. Paul is urging us to guard and pursue and maintain unity in this church like that. Now, in the rest of our passage, we're going to find the word one used a lot. It's actually used more frequently in this text than any other passage in the Bible. Okay, we're going to find the word one used seven times in just three verses. And those seven uses of the word one mark the seven remaining points in this sermon and the seven reasons why we must be humble, gentle, patient, bearing with one another in love as we're eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And so look at the beginning of verse 4. The first reason Paul gives is, there is one body. See, the Bible gives us many different metaphors for how to, to think of the church, how to think of the people of God. And in fact, even in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, he gives us many different metaphors for how to think of the church. Even so far in Ephesians, Paul has told us to think of the church like a kingdom, a family, a temple, Later in chapter 5, he'll say a bride. And here, he says, the body. That seems to be Paul's favorite metaphor for the church, the body of Christ. And our text says there is one body. You see, a healthy and whole body is made up of many different and diverse parts, and yet one body works together. 
However, we know this, a body's not like a machine, right? A machine is an aggregation of different parts, but a body's not merely an aggregation. A body is much more than that. A body is organically joined to its various parts in such a way that the parts are so much more than merely parts, that they are the body too. And this is why Paul calls the church the body, the body of Christ. And don't miss the point that Paul's making at the very beginning of verse 4. There is one body. That all who are in Christ are joined by the Holy Spirit through faith to our risen Lord Jesus Christ, and we all belong to his body. Again, Paul's not saying you really need to work hard to be one body. That's not what he's saying. He says you are one body. You really are. Now be who you are. You are one body, whether you realize it or not. You are one body, whether you feel like it or not. It's true, there's one body. Therefore, be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Or as the late pastor James Boyce put it, clearly this is a great argument for preserving the church's unity. It's an argument based on what we are, one body. Therefore, we suffer divisions only at great personal loss. And we should not let them happen. As Paul says in Ephesians 4, 4, there is one body. Now think about it this way, thinking about a body, if e- even a small splinter in, in, in your pinky finger can be terribly distracting, annoying, even quite painful. Okay, I hope you don't have one right now, but it can be painful. In the same way, a petty conflict, one unreasonably disagreeable person can do great damage to a local church when they insist on selfishly complaining and gossiping to others. See, put simply, there is only one body, and when we hurt another Christian, we hurt the church. We hurt the body, the body of Christ. So why bear with one another in love as we maintain unity? Paul says there is one body, but he's got many other reasons. So look again at verse 4. He says, there is one body in one spirit. See, Paul's point here is that we are one in Christ because of the person and work of the Holy Spirit. It's the work of the one Holy Spirit who indwells us and binds us to Christ and to one another in Christian unity. I mean, think about us in this room. We've got different backgrounds, different generations, different professions, different educations, different personalities. Many of us are from different parts of the country, even from different parts of the world. So why would we all be here in this one church? Why would we pray for one another? Why would we teach one another's children the scriptures? Why would we be willing to serve one another or even sacrifice for one another? Why would we love one another? Paul says it's because of the one Holy Spirit dwelling and working within us all. Or as the late theologian Charles Hodge put it, the body of Christ is one because it is pervaded by one and the same Spirit. All sins against unity are therefore sins against the Holy Spirit. Why bear with one another in love as we maintain unity? There's one body and there's one spirit, but then he gives another reason. Look at verse 4. One body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. 
Now, the word hope can be tricky for us to, to understand um, in, in, a, in, in a sermon because the way that we use the word hope whenever we're just talking to each other is, is quite different most of the time from how the Bible uses the word, word hope, right? So, for example, whenever we hear a friend speak about hope, then he or she usually is referring to something uncertain, something that they're not certain is going to happen, but they hope it might happen, right? There's, there's wishful thinking, they're hoping, you know, kind of like your friend who's a Yankee fan might say, I hope we win at least one game, you know, just one. <laughs> However, a Christian's hope is nothing like the world's use of hope. See, dear Christian, your hope in Christ is sure and certain. And we looked at this last Sunday. Think back to 1 Peter 1, verses 3 and 4. According to his great mercy, God has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. You've been born again to one hope. And each and every one of you shares that one hope. You all share, we all share this one living hope. We've been born again to this one living hope we were born again to this one imperishable, undefiled, unfading inheritance that is kept in heaven for us, which is as sure and certain as Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And Paul has that hope in mind. See, he's already spoken, written about this hope earlier in Ephesians. In Ephesians 1, verse 18, he said, Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope, that one hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? See, that's the hope that Paul still has in mind in our passage. That's the one hope. So look again at verse 4. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. See, Paul's point is that we must be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit because we all share the same one hope. Regardless of our trials of various kinds, regardless of our differences, our different preferences, we are all united in our one shared hope, in this one shared certain and sure future of eternal life with our triune God and all of his people. See, Christ will bring all of his people all of the way home. And this means every Christian in this room is ultimately traveling in the same direction, traveling to the same destination. To the same heavenly home that we all share in the same one hope and this is true for every christian in this sanctuary this morning do you realize that every christian in this room even with all of their flaws and annoyances even with all of your flaws and annoyances share the one same sure and certain hope of being perfected in glory and spending all eternity with our god and all of his people or as Pastor Richard Phillips puts, asks this question, do you realize this about every believer with you in church? These are your people. These are your people because this is our destiny together in Christ. Do you realize that? These are your people. Your people are not primarily the people who live in your neighborhood. They're not primarily the people who share your same profession or share your, your, your favorite hobbies 
or who are members of the same club or the same organization or who went to the same schools that you went to or whose kids go to the same school that your kids go to. These are your people. Why bear with one another in love as we maintain unity? Look again. Look again at verse 4 in the beginning of verse 5. There's one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. And then in verse 5, one Lord. To the risen Lord Jesus Christ is the one Lord who, who reigns over and rules over all his people, over his church, over this local church, over you, over me. He is the Father's only begotten Son, the one Savior of the world, the only Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's the one way, the one truth, the one life. He's our only advocate with the Father. He's the only mediator between God and man. That every man, woman, child in the sanctuary who belongs to Christ are family. These are your people. And they are to be treated, valued, loved as family. Right? Our one Lord commands it. Right? Why bear with one another in love as we maintain unity? Look again at our passage. Look at verse 4 and verse 5. There's one body, one spirit. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith. Now let's try to understand what Paul doesn't mean by one faith before we look at what he does mean. So obviously Paul does not mean that people with any kind of faith, any kind of spiritual belief are all one. For example, it's entirely possible for someone to have sincere faith in, in, in a Savior other than Christ and be sincerely wrong. It's very possible to be very sincere and sincerely wrong in believing that one's good works will save them. It's possible to be sincerely wrong in believing, you know what, as long as your good outweighs your bad, then God's going to grade on a curve and you're going to be fine, he'll let you into heaven. And we know that's, that's not what the Bible teaches at all, right? The salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and in Christ alone. Whereas Peter preached in Acts 4 verse 12, and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Right, so the world says to us, well, well, there can be one God, there can be one Lord, and then, and then many faiths. You know, all faith roads, all spiritual paths can, can lead to the one same God, the, the one same heaven. You know, all these spiritual roads can, can be going up the same one spiritual mountain. But that's not what the Bible says. That's not what Jesus says. Right in John 14, 6, it says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, every once in a while, I'll hear someone say something like this. Richard, just, just give us Jesus and not doctrine. Doctrine divides. See, friends, may we never, ever pit Jesus against doctrine. That Jesus taught doctrinal truth. But it is true that doctrinal truth does divide, and good and faithful doctrine taught well. It divides us in ways that we need to be divided. L listen to how R.C. Sproul put it. Yes, doctrinal truth divides. It divides the sheep from the goats. It divides the gospel from heresy. It divides Christ from the Antichrist. Our culture preaches the doctrine of justification by a, a contentless faith, a faith that believes anything and everything, 
But that's not this one faith. That's not what Paul's talking about in verse 5. That's not Christianity. That's not biblical faith. That's not what Paul means by one faith in verse 5. Okay, well, what does Paul mean? He means that all true Christians are united by the one faith in Christ that was revealed by God through his word. Or as Jude 3 puts it, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. See, that's the one faith. The one faith is the one faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. That's the one faith that unites us. That's the one faith that we ought to contend for. And and we are not to compromise or sacrifice that faith for the sake of mere worldly unity. Okay, well, Richard, what's the content of this one faith? That's a big question. I'm glad you asked. It's an important question. We can look at a number of places. We can look to the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed. But, but perhaps the best place to go is 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 to 6. Paul writes, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Now, there's, there's so, there, there are several essential doctrinal truths in that passage. Truths that are, that are essential for true and saving Christianity, like the deity of Christ, the lordship of Christ, Christ's death as the atonement for our sin. Christ's bodily resurrection on that first Easter morning. Justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And I think Paul's point by mentioning one faith is that all who share in this one faith are one in Christ. And so why bear with one another in love as we maintain unity? Well, look again at verses 4 and 5. There's one body and one spirit just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, and now he says one baptism. And you think, oh no, this is already a long sermon and he's going to talk about baptism now. Well, listen, I, I know it's a long sermon and I, I'm not going to say all that could be said about baptism. Instead, I, here's, I want to focus on what I believe Paul's point is. I believe Paul's point is that Christian baptism is the sealing sign of cleansing from sin and union with Christ. That our baptism is intended to mark us as belonging to Christ and to his church. Therefore, all of us who have been baptized into Christ and his church should be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Or as James Boyce puts it, Paul is not concerned here with modes of baptism, but with what baptism signifies, namely identification with Christ. That is the unifying thing. Have you been baptized into Christ? Have you publicly identified with Jesus Christ? That is the issue. If that is the issue, then before the world, we are identified together with Jesus Christ and must stand together for him. That these are your people. So so why bear with one another in love as we maintain unity? Well, look now at our whole passage. Look at or look at verse 4 to 6. There's one body and one spirit. 
just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who's over all and through all and in all. And as you look at verses 4 to 6, do you notice that this is, you know, tri, this is a Trinitarian doctrine here? That all three persons of the Trinity are mentioned. That Paul references the one Holy Spirit. And then he mentions the one Lord, Jesus the Son. And now he ends with the one God and Father. See, when Paul writes one God and Father of all, the, the all is referring to all true Christians. And, and, and that's obvious from the context, right? Of course, that's who Paul has in mind because Paul is teaching us about the one unified family of God in Christ. And there's only one God and Father over his one church, over his one spiritual family. Now, there's been lots of points, eight points, looking at all of these little, little words. And so how do, we, how do we summarize this? Well, I think the pastor Sinclair Ferguson summarized it well. Christ has only one body. By definition, its members are members of one another. He has only one spirit who indwells each and every Christian believer. Think of it, at the deepest level, I have in common with each of my fellow Christians this reality. The same spirit makes our lives home for the Father and the Son. We have one and the same master. We share the same saving trust in him and have all received the same sign, one baptism. Each of us confesses the one God. All believers have the same Father, the one who rules over all things, works through all for our good. Our hope is one, our faith is one, and our Lord is one. As I said to you multiple times now, these are your people. Could there possibly be more basic, closer, all-embracing, or important unity than that? So brothers and sisters in Christ, I mean, think about what this means. What this means for us if we really understand this. I mean, does this not make our our genuine, legitimate preferences and our genuine, legitimate disagreements and even our petty, selfish ambitions pale in comparison with the glory and the praise and the pleasure of our one God, the God who saved us, the God who will bring all of his people all of the way home, I mean, how can we understand all of this and still insist on our own personal preferences at all costs? Or still hold on to our small grievances with one another? I mean, we we must never accommodate sin, must never compromise with falsehood for the sake of unity, but Christian unity must be, it must be cherished and guarded, pursued, and maintained by all of us. And so in closing, here one more time, Paul's exhortation at the beginning of Ephesians 4. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for the many passages in your word that are like this, that are so 
clear and simple to understand, and yet so challenging and so difficult to actually live out. Father, we, we pray that, that you would mercifully convict us and correct us and challenge us in all the ways that we need to be convicted and corrected and challenged. At the same time, Father, I pray that you would, you would comfort us and you would encourage us to bear with one another in love, in humility, gentleness, and patience, that we would be individuals and be a local congregation that is indeed eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. We cannot do this on our own. We need you to help us. We need you to do this, Father. Please write these truths upon our hearts, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.